Please turn with me in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 21, verses 1 through 11. And when you found your place, please stand for the reading of God's word and remain standing for a time of prayer follow. Still hearing pages turn, so I'll just give it a second. When they approached Jerusalem and came to Bethphage at the Mount of Olives, Jesus then sent two disciples, telling them, Go into the village ahead of you. At once you will find a donkey tied there with her foal. Untie them and bring them to me. If anyone says anything to you, say that the Lord needs them, and he will send them at once. This took place so that what was spoken through the prophet might be fulfilled. Tell daughter Zion, See, your king is coming to you, gentle and mounted on a donkey, and on a colt the foal of a donkey. The disciples went and did just as Jesus directed them. They brought the donkey and its foal, then they laid their clothes on them, and he sat on them. And a very large crowd spread their clothes on the road. Others were cutting branches from the trees and spreading them on the road. Then the crowds who went ahead of him and those who followed shouted, Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna is the highest heaven. When he entered Jerusalem, the whole city was in an uproar, saying, Who is this? The crowds were saying, This is the prophet Jesus from Nazareth in Galilee. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, Thank you for this wonderful opportunity, Lord, of uh, letting us come in here and worship and praise you in this uh, beautiful new sanctuary, Lord. I pray that you uh, be with our country right now, Lord, and uh, everything going on with it, and especially with this virus, Lord. And I pray that everything gets back to normal soon and everybody's healed. I pray that you uh, forgive us for all our sins, Lord, and be a chase today as he uh, preaches the lesson. Amen. The donkey thought he was exceptionally important. So he said, I'm going to go get a second dose of what I received yesterday. So he says to himself, I'll start at the well. So he approaches the well. There's people filling from the well there, and they pay him no attention. And he thinks to himself, what is the matter with you? Don't you know who I am? Praise me. Wave palm branches in the air. Put them in front of me at my feet and still... They paid him no attention. So he thought to himself, you know what? I'll go to the marketplace. There are surely better people there. So he makes his way to the marketplace, and there he receives the exact same reaction. So discontent, he heads home, and he tells his mom what's happened. And she says, well, son, you're just not that important without him. And there's a lot of truth to that short story. Oftentimes, we think of ourselves as far more important than what we actually are. In the Christian faith, we recognize every day as important because every day is a gift from God. However, there are certain days that we hold in slightly higher regard. I think about Christmas where we celebrate the birth of our Savior. I think about Easter Sunday where we recognize the resurrection of our Savior, which without Christianity falls apart. And then I think about today, Palm Sunday, 
where we recognize Jesus' triumphal entry into Jerusalem as a lowly king on the back of a donkey. Before we look at the text today, I want to point out that all four accounts of the gospel mention the triumphal entry. Now, sometimes we don't concern ourselves with the intricate details of Scripture thoroughly enough. And because of that, sometimes we aren't able to give as adequate a defense of Scripture as we should. Skeptics read things like this and they say, look, there's some differences here in your Scripture. This presents a problem. There are errors here. You can't possibly believe this fallacy. You're mistaken. That being said, the first thing we're going to look at today are some contradictions, contradictions of Scripture. As Christians, we believe in the inerrancy of Scripture, correct? Do you believe in the inerrancy of Scripture? Let's take a detailed look at the so-called contradictions in Scripture. Matthew chapter 21, starting in verse 1. When they approached Jerusalem and came to Bethphage at the Mount of Olives, Jesus then sent two disciples telling them, Go into the village ahead of you. At once you will find a donkey tied there with her foal. Untie them and bring them to me. If anyone says anything to you, say that the Lord needs them, and he will send them at once. Now, as I mentioned earlier, all four accounts of the gospel mention Jesus' triumphal entry. You'll find it here in Matthew 21, Mark 11, Luke 19, and John chapter 12. Now, other gospel writers will point out that there was one cult. Now, is this a legitimate contradiction? Can we make sense of this discrepancy? Did Matthew make a mistake, or was there a mistake somewhere along the line in what he recorded? Does this mean Christianity falls apart? Well, first, take notice that Mark, Luke, and John do not say that only one donkey was obtained, or that even only one donkey traveled to Jerusalem with Jesus. It would be a little different if they stated only one donkey traveled. Instead, they only mention one donkey. Let's look at it a different way. Let's say you had a friend over at your house last night, or several friends for that matter. And this morning at church or the next day at work, you tell a coworker about it, but you fail to mention someone that was there. Does that mean that you lied about who was there? Well, no, absolutely not. Even if you intentionally left them out, does not indicate that you were lying about the person who was there. Now, in some ways, this is encouraging. If these stories were too similar, it would, it would create a problem. It could it could indicate that the stories could have been made up. I mean, if several of us in here witness an event, regardless of what event it is, we're all going to have a slightly different story because we saw it from a different perspective. And the same thing's true when you have a police officer or private investigator or detective question someone regarding a crime. They're going to separate them and talk to them individually because they want to get the, the story, and they expect to see some minor differences as long as the big picture lines up. I'll give you another example. Have any of you ever seen the movie Vantage Point? Vantage Point came out in 2008, and it was a movie about an assassination attempt on the President of the United States. And this movie, this, the, this scene is seen from the perspective of eight different characters and they each have a unique take on the story because they have seen it from a different vantage point. So the stories between Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John are no different. They each had a different vantage point and therefore recorded things slightly differently. Now keep in mind 
that Matthew was one of the disciples as well, where Mark and Luke were not. So it is quite possible that Matthew was one of the two disciples commanded by Jesus to go on ahead of him to retrieve these animals, and therefore he recorded a little bit more detail in the story. Verse 4, this took place so that what was spoken through the prophet might be fulfilled. Tell daughter Zion, see your king is coming to you gentle and mounted on a donkey on a, and on a colt, the foal of a donkey. Matthew's recording here in chapter 21 is a direct reference to Zechariah chapter 9 verse 9 which says this, Rejoice greatly, daughter Zion. Shout in triumph, daughter Jerusalem. Look, your king is coming to you. He is righteous and victorious, humble and riding on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. Now some will say Matthew misinterpreted this prophecy. Either Zechariah was only referring to one donkey or Jesus rode two donkeys at the same time. And that would look awful ridiculous. I mean, Jesus trying to straddle two donkeys or sit on one and throw his legs across the other. I mean, you try to picture that. It would look awful ridiculous, wouldn't it? How in the world is that even possible? I always tell these students, when you're looking at Scripture, there are three things that you need to look at to get a better picture and a better understanding of what's going on. First, you need to look at the context. And then you need to look at the culture. And then you need to cross-reference that with other places in Scripture. So, do we have anything in Scripture to cross-reference in regard to a donkey? Actually, we do, believe it or not. Turn to 2 Samuel chapter 16. Now, it's worth pointing out while you're turning there, 2 Samuel chapter 16, starting in verse 1, that Matthew and John's account of the triumphal entry indicate that not only was there a crowd there with Jesus, but a very large crowd. 2 Samuel chapter 16, starting in verse 1, says this, When David had gone a little beyond the summit, Ziba, Mephibosheth's servant, was right there to meet him. He had a pair of saddled donkeys loaded with 200 loaves of bread, 100 clusters of raisins, 100 bunches of summer fruit, and a clay jar of wine. The king said to Ziba, Why do you have these? Ziba answered, The donkeys are for the king's household to ride. The bread and the summer fruit are for the young men to eat, and the wine is for those to drink who become exhausted in the wilderness. Now this, of course, isn't a direct reference to Matthew 21 or to Zechariah, for that matter, but it does show us something worth noting. Typically, when traveling, one donkey might have had supplies for the men who would be going or for the large crowds that would be gathered. It is also quite possible that since Jesus rode a donkey that had never been ridden before, this donkey could not travel without its mother. It needed the companionship of its mother to stay on course, to stay on track. We all picture that. We can imagine that. Now, it wasn't a long trip for Jesus. Jesus could have walked this trip. As a matter of fact, this is the only place in Scripture it's recorded where Jesus rode an animal rather than walked during his ministry. Now, there's speculation that Jesus did not stay in Jerusalem the entire week of the Passover, but rather he traveled back and forth between Jerusalem and Bethany each day. Now, I want to be clear. You may think, listen, this is really unimportant to me. I'm a, I'm a follower of Christ. I'm a believer. And I don't really care if there was one donkey or two donkeys or 30 donkeys. It doesn't matter to me. I'm a believer. Well, here's why it's important. Because skeptics will look at things like this and they'll say, well, here's a reason not to believe. And we need to have an understanding of where they're coming from so that we can help better guide them and point them 
to Jesus Christ, our Savior. Let's shift our focus for just a moment and talk about the courage of Christ. Courage. As believers, we understand that Christ was both fully man and fully God. Now, that's easy to say, but it's much more difficult to convey and to understand. I mean, being both fully God and fully man. John chapter 17, verse 5 says this. We understand that Christ, or excuse me, and now, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. Jesus Christ is the embodiment of God in the flesh. Therefore, he is both fully man in the sense that he knows what our struggles are, he knows what our temptations are, he knows what it's like to walk and have the human experience, but he's also fully God. Imagine for a second the courage it took coming into Jerusalem knowing full well you would be handed over to be crucified. I want you to picture what Jerusalem would have looked like for just a second this week. This was the week of Passover. During the Passover, the Jews would have celebrated being out of bondage to Egypt. You can remember back in Exodus when Pharaoh was enslaving the Jews and God poured these plagues upon him, and the last of which was the death of every firstborn son. And the Jews would take and they would sprinkle blood, the lamb's blood, on the lamppost so that the death angel would literally pass over. This was the last plague, and this is what they're celebrating. Jews would literally flock to Jerusalem this time of year, and some scholars believe that the year Jesus was crucified, there could have been upwards of a million people in Jerusalem that year. Now, they don't all agree on that. Some say several hundred thousand. Some say upwards of a million. Either way, very large crowds. And there would have been a lot of excitement, a lot of celebration. There would have been children playing in the street, a lot of hustle and bustle, vendors selling goods, a lot of commotion going on, a lot of laughing and yelling, people scurrying down the streets, just a ton of stuff. Now, keep in mind, that the Romans dominated the show during this time. The Romans would execute a great show of strength during this time as well. It was almost as if the Romans would say, all right, listen, you can have your little Passover feast. You can have your little celebration. You can, you can join in in the fun and do all this kind of stuff, but just keep in mind who's in charge. We rule over you. We run the show here. And... Just so you know that, we're going to be prowling around in this show of force. Just so you know who's in charge. There's actually a sermon that I've listened to before where a man talks about Jesus' triumphal entry into Jerusalem on one side and then at the exact same time the Romans having their triumphal entry into Jerusalem on the other, on war horses in a show of strength and fortitude. Picture something similar taking place today. Think about for a moment a police force sitting outside today, symbolic of, well, listen, you can come to church and you can sing your little worship songs and you can have your little fellowship and you know what? You can even meet an hour early and you can have some Bible study. But don't you dare take that junk outside of the church. Don't you dare try to reach your community with it. And just in case you get too carried away, we're standing right out here as a show of force. Don't think it can happen? Don't be so sure. This past year, John MacArthur's church was fined several times for having 12 people, 12 people in their auditorium for a prayer meeting, an auditorium that seats several thousand. 
In Kentucky this past year, worship attenders would have their license plates taken down and they were forced to quarantine for 14 days after showing up because they violated the stay-at-home order. I'm going to tell you, you know, I think about even last night. I don't know how many basketball fans are in here. I haven't watched any basketball this year, but I think about Oral Roberts. Oral Roberts, they, they lost last night. They were defeated by Arkansas, 72-70. Uh, to 70. And I think about this past week. I don't know if any of you had an opportunity to see it. The USA Today put out an article about Oral Roberts, and they said in it that they should have never even been invited because they're a Christian school and the Bible is archaic and they hold certain prejudices against homosexuals and transgenders. I'm telling y'all, we've got to be prepared. We need to make up our minds right now. Are we going to be prepared for a time of that? Because I'm telling you, as much as I hate to say it, as much as I enjoy coming here freely and not being bothered, I, f I fear that persecution's right at our door. Are we going to have the Christ-like courage to keep showing up when it does? If and when that day comes, are we going to have the Christ-like courage? More than that, will we continue to be the church out there? I mean, it's one thing to show up here once or twice a week and another thing to live it out there. I know because I struggle with it. There's people sitting in this auditorium right now that know me better than anybody in the world, and they'll tell you I struggle with it. Look at verse 8. I, I want to say one more thing about that. Jesus Christ came into this scene knowing full well in the coming days he would be given over to be beaten, scourged, and crucified. And he still did it. Verse 8, a very large crowd spread their clothes on the road. Others were cutting branches from the trees and spreading them on the road. Then the crowds went ahead of him, and those who followed shouted, Hosanna to the Son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest heaven. When he entered Jerusalem, the whole city was in uproar, saying, Who is this? The crowds were saying, This is the prophet Jesus from Nazareth in Galilee. Hosanna, they shouted. Hosanna means save us. Save us, Son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. These people thought this was the Savior who was going to come in and free them from Roman oppression. They thought he would lead them to a mighty victory over the Roman government, and he eventually would, but not in the way that they were expecting. He would come as a lowly king riding on a donkey that had never been ridden, a humble king who would be executed a week later. I cannot help but think... How many people were in this very large crowd exalting Christ as he made his way into Jerusalem would also be part of the same crowd yelling a week later for him to be crucified and Barabbas to be traded in his place? Would we have done it any differently? Would we have had the courage to take a stand for Christ or would we have joined right in the chanting for Jesus to be executed? Sadly, I believe many of us would have been right there with him. I mean, think about it for a minute. Jesus comes into Jerusalem... On this triumphal entry, people were thinking, this is it. This is it. He's going to free us. We're, we're not going to be enslaved anymore. And you know he does absolutely nothing. Did you know that? The next recorded event that we have in Matthew was the, was the cleansing of the temple. But did you know that's not the very next thing he does? Because in Mark chapter 11, verse 11, it says this. He went into Jerusalem and into the temple. After looking around at everything, since it was already late, he went out to Bethany with the twelve. I mean, he just leaves. He shows up in this grand entrance, 
Everybody's thinking, this is it. He's going to do something. He, he, he's going to free us. He walks to the temple. I can imagine this crowd, this very large crowd, entering into Jerusalem, and it just kind of dissipating into the Passover that's already taking place, the celebration that's already going on. And Jesus walking into the temple and looking around and then leaving. I mean, imagine their disappointment. He didn't meet their expectations. We do exactly the same thing. We do exactly the same thing. We treat Christ according to our expectations. How many of you have had ex expectations of God and he didn't meet them the way that you thought he should? Maybe you got passed over for a promotion at work. Or maybe one of you students sitting here, you didn't get that scholarship that you've, you thought you really deserved, that you've been kind of pouring out into. Maybe you didn't get accepted in the school you wanted to. Maybe you're having a real problem in your relationship at home and you're thinking, you know what, this is it. I'm, I'm, I'm getting ready to bust up with my spouse because God's just not meeting my expectations. What about when the church doesn't meet your expectations? What about when a pastor forgets to call you back? Or they don't come visit you for a surgery? Or something happens? We treat God according to our expectations of him. And we say, you know what? Fine, forget it. He didn't meet this expectation of me or for, for me. I'm done. I'm, I'm done with this church thing. I'm going to stay at home. I'm going to forget it. And then we go home and we get out of the fellowship with other believers and we, grow har we harbor bitterness and resentment. We treat Christ according to our, our, our expectations and we quit trusting in God and in his love and in his mercy and in his goodness for us. Do we have the courage to take a stand for Christ in a world that is daily drifting further and further from the truth? Moving on to point number three, let's talk about control. How many of you like being in control? I like being in control too. I mean, we want to control a situation. I'll tell you, like for me personally, I like to, I like to drive because I like to be in control of the vehicle. It's not, it's not that I don't trust you. I just trust me a whole lot more, okay? <laughs> so that's just the bottom. And, and for, for most of us, that's the case, especially most men. We want to be in control of a situation, of a conversation, of our lives. Whatever the case may be, we want to be in control. But the fact of the matter is, how much control do we really have? We've got very, very little control. Now, what about Jesus? Is Jesus actually in control? Does he control the events that are taking place? Or is he just arranging things as he goes? Is he and the circumstances surrounding the events of his life and the lives of his disciples just a product of chance? Or does God, Jesus, God in the flesh, have control over these things? Some people will say Jesus wasn't necessarily in control. I mean, back in the beginning verses, Jesus tells two disciples to go on ahead of him and to retrieve these two donkeys. And they'll say, well, hang on a minute. You know, it seems really unlikely that Jesus just knew that those animals would be there. And he knew how the owners of those animals would respond because he told his, his disciples how to respond. And in other gospel accounts, they responded exactly as Jesus had told them and they said, the Lord has need of him. I mean, was Jesus really in control of that or did he perhaps make an arrangement of that prior to? I believe in the sovereignty of Jesus Christ. 
I believe he absolutely had the foreknowledge of what would take place. Remember what I said earlier about cross-referencing Scripture with other parts of Scripture? You don't have to turn there. I'm going to read this for you. Look at uh, Mark chapter 14, verse 13. Listen to this. So he sent two of his disciples and told them, Go into the city, and a man carrying a jar of water will meet you. Follow him. Wherever he enters, tell the owner of the house. The teacher says, Where is my guest room where I may eat the Passover with my disciples? He will show you a large upper room upstairs, furnished and ready. Make the preparations for us there. So the disciples went out, entered the city, and found it, just as he had told them. And they prepared the Passover. Also at Mark chapter 10, verses 33 and 34. See, we are going up to Jerusalem. This is Jesus talking. See, we are going up to Jerusalem. The Son of Man will be handed over to the chief priests and the scribes, and they will condemn him to death. Then they will hand him over to the Gentiles, and they will mock him, spit on him, flog him, and kill him, and he will rise after three days. Ladies and gentlemen, Jesus was in complete control of his life in the events leading up to his death. It wasn't happenstance. It wasn't a random chance of events. Christ was in total control. These are just a few of the, the events he foretold. There are many others. Think about it. So maybe someone does say, okay, well, in the Matthew 21 account, Jesus didn't really have the foreknowledge. He set that up ahead of time. It seems far more unlikely that he knew that there would be a man carrying a jar of water in the city at the same time that would show them to the Passover room. And then in Mark chapter 10, he predicted his death for the third time. In the same way, it's not by chance that you're here today. It's not just chance or dumb luck that you walk through those doors. You may, be, you may think you were forced to be here today. Students, there may be some sitting right out here today who are like, man, you know what? I stayed up till 3 o'clock this morning. And I woke up and it was raining. And I really did not want to come to church. But my mom told me I didn't have a choice. Or maybe you're an adult and you thought, I've heard of some things going on at Pole Creek, and I heard that they had this renovation taking place, and I wasn't able to be here last week, but I wanted to come today to see what it looked like, to see what all the talk was about. Or maybe you're an adult, and somebody just drug you here, and they said, you know, I really want you to come, and you had no interest whatsoever. I'm telling you, it's not by chance that you're here today. <clears throat> you are here, and Christ wants to change your life. And he can change your life if you will allow him to. Now today we've discussed the triumphal entry of Jesus Christ into Jerusalem. Now I'll be honest with you. I don't have any idea how large this event actually was. We know by Matthew and John's account that there was a large crowd there. I, I, have, I believe it was a large crowd. I have no idea how large because Jesus, while making this grand entrance... He certainly wouldn't have wanted to attract attention to people who wanted him dead. So how many people were there? I don't know. The bottom line is the triumphal entry of Jesus into Jerusalem was not triumphal because of the number of people that were there. It was triumphal because the events leading up to his death would ultimately change the world. Today, though... I want to ask you about the triumphal entry of Jesus into your life. You see, the intricate details of the triumphal entry into Jerusalem aren't what ultimately matter. We can study and we can debate and we can discuss all day long 
And truly what consensus we come to doesn't really matter. What matters is who you say Christ is and if Christ has made a triumphal entry into your life and into your heart. Did you catch the last part of verse 10? Who is this? Who is this, they ask. Verse 11, the crowds were saying, this is the prophet Jesus from Nazareth in Galilee. Do you know him today? If not, today is the day to allow Christ to make his triumphal entry into your life. I promise you, you will not regret it. Too many times we look to so much else to find hope and to find life in. And aren't you tired of looking in other places for hope and for life when the only thing that could possibly fulfill it is Jesus Christ? You've tried everything else under the sun. If God's speaking to you today, I ask that you allow him to make that triumphal entry into your life. Pray with me.